Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Paleo Valley Beef Sticks. Now, before I let Kelly tell you a little bit more about Paleo Valley Beef Sticks, sticks. let me just say that at all times of the day or night, I have a beef stick in my purse, my backpack. I take them on trips. I use them as like an emergency snack, an emergency protein for like four o'clock in the afternoon when I realize I'm way behind. Way behind what? You mean your macros? Way behind on my macros. Yeah, I struggle to get the macros. And one of the things that I love about Paleo Valley and these particularly family farm based, right? Rotational grazing practices, no chemicals, no pesticides, grain never, ever, ever ends up in these cows. So what you're seeing is actually regenerative agriculture. So when you're reaching for that thing, what you're seeing is actually it's a small family farm. That's killer. The other thing that's so important about these things is they just taste so oh, stop, good. Stop. I mean, yeah. I mean, good for the environment, hit your macros, and tasty. tasty they're so tasty. tasty. Also, you should know that they, they're impervious to cold. We throw them in our backpacks and pockets when we ski, when we, like, our friends literally now are trained to be like, hey, you have any of those beef sticks, especially the jalapeno beef sticks? You know, I used to always just carry around some random bar in my bag, Gross. and ever since I found the beef stick, that's my go-to emergency snack. I totally agree. Look, if you want to know more, and we suggest highly that you do, think of it as an emergency awesome supply in your bag. In your bag, Like one of those hand crank radios, except tasty. TheReadyState.com slash beef sticks. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Keon Aminos. Let me tell you one of my favorite ways of using Keon Aminos. So I've been using them for a long time mainly because I'm not really regular on trying to hit all my protein goals. I really just kind of struggle to eat all the time, right? Sounds like a problem, but to hit, I can eat all the cookies. No problem. No problem. There are a few aminos in the cookies. So let me tell you one of my favorite ways. When I jump and I travel and I jump on an airplane, I'm not moving around very much. So I'm like, how many calories do I really need? So I really like to eat the black coffee in some aminos. So I treat it like a fast where I can control my calories because I'm very active, but I keep my lean muscle mass. You know, Kelly really likes to take the tablet form of these aminos, but they also come in flavored powdered forms like cool lime and mixed berry. Yeah. And so there's just a lot of options, but I know you really like the tablet. Super easy on my stomach. In fact, I've, I've gone hard in the paint exercise. I'm fed. Doesn't, I don't have any gastric upset because sometimes I don't want to eat a whole lot and then like try to keep up with you on the mountain bike. It's not super fun. Yeah. You do usually eat these as like a pre-workout thing. Yeah. And if I'm, and you know, one of the things that I, you know, talk to a lot of my vegan and vegetarian athletes friends about is making sure they are getting enough essentials. These are vegetarian. And so it's really nice with, I think, I think it's called plant-based now. Oh, sorry. What I meant to say is plant-based. That's correct. And what's nice then is that I know that my athlete friends who are maybe meat sensitive aren't, we can guarantee that they can hold on to, or create a complete amino acid profile without having to eat like 16 pounds of brown rice. To learn more and get some of these aminos for yourself, go to the readystate.com slash aminos and you can get 20% off your first purchase. Anastasia Maggioncalda is the head of production for the creative studio at LinkedIn. Anastasia was a photography and cultural anthropology student at Sarah Lawrence College and after graduating, worked as a producer and studio manager alongside fashion photographers in New York. After transitioning to commercial work, she led production at both Shelter Films and Crossroad Films. 
Anastasia made the move to the West Coast and the agency side of things, working with such brands as BMW, Gatorade, Target, Lexus, Coke, Virgin America, Oakley, Apple, Visa, and Aria. She has also run visual effects production on numerous music videos for artists like NSYNC, Ricky Martin, Linkin Park, Sheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, Kanye West, and on feature films like Spider-Man, Hellboy, Castaway, Sin City, and Iron Man. Anastasia has won a Webby and a Bronze Lion for her work with Virgin America. In full disclosure, I first met Anastasia at a book club in my neighborhood, and we've been fast friends ever since. Anastasia, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thank you for having me. Seriously. Okay, so in full disclosure, we're friends. And neighbors. That's, I think that barely scratches it. In full disclosure, you're one of the most extraordinary women in our Yeah, and life. one of our dearest friends. And you and I have even shared champagne in Paris. We have. You are the wing woman of all wing women. When my wife is not there, you're the best surrogate. Can you tell me what the circumstance was that you guys were drinking champagne in Paris again? It was a Tuesday. <laughs> I think it was a Tuesday, actually. <laughs> what were you doing there? I was watching him eat steak because I don't eat steak, but that was the best part of the night. Wait, wait, hold on. Let's back up. One, as I was teaching there, you were there for work. You couldn't actually eat me, see me eat steak because of the cigarette smoke. That is true. So what happened was I was in Paris. Actually, the way I remember it, I was on a hike with you. And I said, I'm going to Paris. And you said, Kelly's going to Paris. So we would have never known we were both there if it weren't for you. <laughs> so you said, you got to hook up with Kelly in Paris. And that's it. Am I right that he drank 75 cappuccinos in one sitting with you? And he drank more champagne than cappuccinos. I was surprised. And then after dinner, we got crepes and more coffee. Although I think I had a glass of wine and watched him drink coffee and eat crepes. Kelly, <laughs> bus, under. Um, one other interesting thing about my friendship with you is that we go to a lot of concerts together. And we are going to go to Billy Idol this summer. I don't even know what to say about that, but I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, so let's let's spin back because people are like, okay, they're they're slipping down the way ma way back machine. I mean, your husband's part of our bike club. That's true. What is it you do, Juliet? Can you explain what Stacia does that makes her so extraordinary? I mean, right now she's the head of production for a small company called LinkedIn, and what she actually does day to day, I don't know, but I would love to learn more. Yes. Well, so I work in San Francisco when I am in San Francisco, when I can be in the office south of market at LinkedIn. And I run what is called the creative studio within LinkedIn's brand and marketing team. So I run the studio where we actually create all the content for LinkedIn's advertising and marketing materials and like TV commercials, out of home, station dominations, social, all of that kind of content. One of the things I want to get out of today's talk is I maybe undervalued, underappreciated the power of LinkedIn for a long time. And you were like, hey, Kel, I've just been on your profile here and it says you're a PT student. Yeah, I was like, wait, Kelly's 19 years old? Like, what's going on here? And you also look 19. I think the photo was uh, from- Well, he definitely had hair. He had hair back then, yes. No, but that is one thing you learn about LinkedIn. Like, you know, we all- created our profiles back in the day when it was like the thing to do. You create a LinkedIn profile and then many people continued with it and many people just were like dropped off, right? So, and then you go back and look at your profile and you're like, wow, man, I haven't touched this in 20 years, right? The reason I want, I just want to open with that is we're in a time right now, I'm going to call it peak fitness craziness, right? You're a professional person. 
the internet is sort of, I don't know, I think, what did Lady Gaga call it? A, a cesspool, a trash hole. It's really hard sometimes to parse out professional relationships there. You know, certainly it's a it's a pickup truck where you have to play a good social media game, your attention game, but and I meet a lot of coaches and interesting people there, but there has to be a better way. And one of the things I think a tool that I've come to appreciate more since you, since Juliet updated my profile. Thank you. And you chose a very handsome photo. Thank you. But a lot of coaches and a lot of people reached out to me as a way, and we were just able to go around the craziness. Like it was like we had a, we had a, sub route or a sneaky kind of we can go around this mountain of social media to have a real conversation again. It's true. And and that's why LinkedIn like year after year always wins like the most trusted social network and the safest place to be on the internet, especially in the to have professional conversations. And, you know, we're trying to, we're at the point now where we are moving and leaning a bit into, you know, the social world a little a little bit more, but still keeping it professional and safe. And so I do think that that's what people appreciate about it. Like nobody wants to maybe put stuff about their career and stuff on Facebook because, or Instagram or whatever, because they think people might not care as much, but to have that, you know, real conversation that, you know, we have a campaign right now called conversations, conversations for change, you know, so about like taking part in the conversation that's out there, that's happening in the world, but in a professional and safe place, as opposed to, the cesspool. <laughs> the cesspool. The cesspool. We call it the Wild Wild West. Yeah. I mean, it really is the Wild So, you know, what's nice is that um, I also see people beginning to, you know, they can support. They're saying, this is what's in for me. You've created loose networks. And I feel like, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people who are in business for themselves, you can relate to, Juliet. I mean, you're the CEO of our company, Jay, and it must feel like sometimes you're on an island working it out by yourself. Is that true? Yes, it is. Well, I mean, for many years of my career, I just had my head down and was working. And, you know, you're a coach, so you've always had all these, like, easy professional relationships, but I didn't have any professional relationships. It was really hard for me to find professional peers. No, it's true. I really feel like you were not in a CEO club and a powerful woman club where you were like, I need, I need these things, I need these resources. You know, for me, again, you are absolutely right. I'm an incredible network of coaches, mm -hmm. but I feel like a lot of people who are in business who maybe listen to this do not have the resources that I have as a coach. I do actually want to keep talking about LinkedIn, but I want to go way, I, I want to come back to LinkedIn since that's your present day job. I just wanted to frame where, like I think what's really telling or one of the interesting things about you right now is that you really have solved a problem for us. And you just happen to be one of our besties. So what I want to know is you've had, I think all of our friends would say you've had this bonkers career. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually the word everybody's used to describe it. Tell me, I know you grew up, grew up in the Bay Area, but tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like, what your parents were like, and sort of how, how your childhood propelled you into this bonkers career. Well, it's funny that people say bonkers too, because it's just also when people don't understand exactly what you do, it feels bonkers, right? Because it's, and to me, it's just a very much a day to day. But I actually grew up in Boston until I was 13. So I lived outside of Boston and my parents, you know, very plain. They both grew up in New Hampshire. My dad was the first person in his family to go to college. My mother never went to college. So I'm sort of half first-generation college student back then. And so basically my dad was an accountant and my mom was a travel agent. And so I, I very plain, very plain. And But I do think the travel was a big thing for me because my mom 
back in the day when travel agents were glamorous and it mattered to have a travel agent, she would get all these like trips. That was yesterday, by the way. (laughs) Pre-internet was yesterday. It feels like a million years ago in a weird way. Like imagine calling a travel agent for a trip right now. I mean. No, I can't even imagine. I don't know how these things get done. They just get done around here. You just all of a sudden have a plane ticket. On your phone. So I, I think I had that like travel bug thing as a kid. So I always w- was very intrigued about seeing the world and like I have to see the world and I have to, you know, get out there. We moved to the Bay Area when I was 13. And that was like from suburban Massachusetts. I basically moved to vacation. I was like, we're going to live here? This is like a vacation. Permanent vacation in Marin County? Yeah. It felt very strange. I mean, literally coming from the woods in Massachusetts, it was like, insane. So we got here and then... That would have been what? 80 what? uh, 83. Yeah. So I was a full-fledged like rocker from Boston who moved here and turned very fast into a valley girl. I think I had turquoise jeans and white sweatshirt with... NorCal Valley Girl. Just so we're clear. People don't know what the geography is. And I had like immediate spiky hair with colored ends or whatever. Like... From my ACDC t-shirt to that. So within a very short period of time. So that was that was my coming into my teenage years. So yeah, so then we lived out here. And I mean, it was like 80s in California. It was crazy. It was just, and again, that's where music started for me because it was like, you know, 80s full-on music scene. So I was really involved in that. But immediately knew that I wanted to go to New York. I mean, ever since I was 13 and moved here and lived here, I loved it. But never had any desire to move to LA or move here or move there. I just was like, I got to go to New York. Let me, let me jump in for a second because you went to the same high school my daughter goes to. That is true. I have seen your yearbook pictures. And if ever there was a human being in their late teens who was going to New York, it's you. <laughs> like I compare you and I'm like, wow, my daughter, if this daughter showed up at my house, I'd be like, here's your ticket to New York. <laughs> well, and the trajectory of my yearbook photos, because it's funny you say this is because my daughter Lola who's exactly your, their daughter's age, Georgia's age, was looking through my yearbooks just the other day. And it was funny because she could not believe the difference between the four years, like how, like I went, like how different the photos were from just like crazy black, crazy spiky hair and like 14 million earrings. And, you know, and then I had like cowboy boots on the next year with like, you know, riding pants and never had been on a horse. Like, what was I wearing? I have no idea. It was like turning into the, you know, going toward the late 80s into that scary. This is why I knew I was going to be fine in Paris. So (laughs) I'm assuming it was like plainly obvious to you in high school that you were going to be like a creative of some kind. Well, I think in high school, I, that's when I kind of first fell in love with photography and I was, I'm going to be a photographer. And I also really loved creative writing. So I had this idea that I was going to, you know, just put those two things together and be a photojournalist and travel the world for National Geographic. I think I had a moment of fantasy about that too. I was like travel, writing, photographing. That was actually a small dream because you've actually exceeded that a little bit. Well, I wouldn't say I, I wrote and photographed for National Geographic. But no, I've done some really cool things. So I feel yeah, like one Webby's. No big deal. Okay, so you you bounce out of Marin County and go to New York to Sarah Lawrence. Was that an all-women's college at any point? Before the 60s, yeah. It was okay. one of the seven sister schools back in the day, and then it went co-ed, co-ed like in the 60s, late 60s, I think. And tell tell me what you what we, what you were up to once you got to New York. I mean, beyond college. 
What, what was your first job out of college? Okay, so after college. Well, in college, I studied under a really amazing photographer first off. So that has a lot to do with what happened right after college. But I worked under, studied under Joel Sternfeld. So anyone who is interested in photography, you might know him. But if not, look him up. And he's, you know, he's in the MoMA. And he had a show in San Francisco a couple years ago at the MoMA too. He's amazing. And his work is phenomenal and just unbelievable. And so he and I just really bonded like he was such a great mentor for me and I really I kind of owe a lot to him because I think he he really believed in me in a weird way like I did this one set of images that I was really proud of and really into and he tore me apart in my critique like tore me apart in front of the whole class about how crazy it was and insane and I was out of my mind and all that fun stuff and then nice to have your teacher tell you all that and then like a couple weeks later this photographer Andre Serrano, who you might also know, but he came out with this big show in New York that was like my work, but not as good, <laughs> which is what my teacher actually said. It's like, I, I don't know why I tore you apart because this guy's got a huge show. But l- let me just say, I mean, I think it must go without saying that you must have showed some kind of mad talent to be able to start working with such a famous established person right off the bat. Well, he was actually a professor at Sarah Lawrence. So I was lucky because he was the professor that was teaching while I was there. But what really helped me so much and I think sort of kickstarted everything for me was he helped me get my internship in college, which was at Magnum Photos, which is like the most coveted internship in the photography world, like next to impossible to get back then. And probably still now, I would think. But it is just, you know, the the highest end like photography collective in the world, right? With all the most established, well-known photographers. So I first, while I was still in college, was interning there. And that's kind of what just kind of got everything rolling for me. And and it was really Joel who who I think had a lot of respect for Magnum. Here we are. There are a lot of kids coming in today. And the media is changing fast. You had a pretty, I mean, looking what you are now, and you sort of bonkers experience you're welcome or bananas as we say maybe bananas Um, you had a pretty hard set of skills though i mean you were actually a working photographer you know i mean you had some technical hard skills Mm -hmm. that maybe doesn't relate to what you do exactly day to day how important is that to come out of college or if you're going towards this direction you hear this to actually be grounded in some kind of technical craft around the creative because I think a lot of people want they they kind of want to work backwards, right? They want the product first without any of the skills. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's hugely important, especially now with all of the social media work out there that people are doing. Like they want people to be makers and doers, not as much just like I learned this and I'm gonna oversee it. Like I think now your chances of being successful are if you've got you're multifaceted with all sorts of hard skills, you know, and up, consistently upskilling. Because we, we hear the generalist is really, you know, a theme that we hear in some of our really successful friends. From Anya Fernald, who just was had such a diverse experience out of college and early, and she kind of aggregates those things. They sort of coalesce into a more cogent whole. But we do see that people want to become the hyper-specialist early on, and that doesn't sound like your path at all. No, not at all. I mean, I think, you know, I majored in photography and minored in cultural anthropology because there was going to be my National Geographic side, right? So, but what I think helped me so much is like understanding cultural anthropology and understanding cultures around the world and globally. And it's very psychologically driven too with with culture and understanding 
just, you know, having that sort of grounding understanding of people and the world and a lot of what I do, honestly, day to day feels like I wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't have intuition and understand a bit of psychology because I'm, that's half of my job, really, even though, you know, I was going to be a creative and all this now, I, half the time it's managing people. Managing people. <laughs> <laughs> Throwback, if you want to, I think you are in our 60 Minutes piece. Is that right? I am. That's right. So if you go back, you can actually see Stacia lurking around when you and I are in 60 Minutes, Julia. I think I'm also in your pelvic floor thing. Oh, boy. <laughs> Don't go watch that. <laughs> you know what? Hey, I wasn't going to bring it up, but uh, you are a pelvic you said floor it, star. Not us. That's right. Okay, so I'm going to ask you what potentially to you I think may seem like a very simple question, but a lot of the titles you've had have been head of production. And I think people kind of know what a producer is on a movie film, sort of. Right. But what does that actually mean? I mean, I, I see that you just said a lot of it is managing people, right. but really like over the span of your career, how has that job changed? And I'm sure it's very different depending on where you're working, but what does it actually mean you're doing all day, every day during the day? Yeah. Well, I mean, it also goes back to like what I started doing. So in the beginning of my career after from the photography into the film world, you know, I was an actual producer, a day-to-day -day producer, which is the person who like produces the project and gets the film made or gets the photography shoot done or get gets, you know, that campaign created. But through learning all that and, and being deeply involved in the creative day-to-day -day and, and on a small team getting the work made, you know, eventually evolving into a head of production role, it is about sort of overseeing an entire team and being a people manager. Really, a lot of it is being a people manager, but also you know, it's still at the roots of getting the project done. So it's a lot of times I am overseeing the creative brief and and determining what the needs are going to need, be for the actual campaign and what all the deliverables are going to be and who the right vendor partners might be to work with, what director would be perfect for this campaign, what photographer would be great to shoot this in Mumbai, what person, you know, just understanding and having all these partnerships too. That, that's huge for me. I think just having such a long, robust career between working in New York, San Francisco, and LA for so many years, just knowing everybody, connecting, and having all these amazing, talented vendor partners to collaborate with and having those relationships really enable us, me and my team, to bring the best people together to create the best possible output. So, Step one, Valley Girl Marin. Step th two, produce music videos for people like InSync. Step three, rule the world. Is that right? I think that's kind of right. Okay, so, you know, I mean, on that point, you did a lot of production for music videos for a lot of big artists. And as we talked about before we started recording, you probably signed a lot of NDAs around that. But tell us some stories about working with some fancy famous people. Because I do want to circle wreck around <laughs> after I hear this. I would say, well, the funny part was when I first moved, I, I had been producing in New York for a really long time and was working predominantly in the commercial film world with the occasional music video and a lot of work for like Viacom back then, like, you know, a lot of Comedy Central, MTV, VH1 kind of work. When I moved out to San Francisco, really the scene out here in the, there was a real heavy visual effects world. And I had I had sort of dipped my toe in visual effects for finishing those kinds of projects in New York. But when I came out here, I ended up sort of evolving into more of a post-visual effects world role. And so that's when I started to get really involved in the music videos. And it was a quite very interesting time in the music industry because it was that 90s uh, 
I would say the heat of the boy band scenario, I feel like I was working on, you know, the visual effects for every single boy band video where, and that was back in the day where videos actually had real budgets. And, and you could actually watch them yeah. on TV, like yeah. easily. You said VH1, MTV, and I'm sure George would be like, what? Exactly. I'm mean, like, who watches that? And, and Comedy Central, all that, you know, that's, it was such a big deal back then. Yes, I feel like it was back to back to back music videos. I, I was like Backstreet Boys into NSYNC, into Ricky Martin, into like, it was just one thing after another. We did get to do some like Oasis and, you know, some more Metallica. I did a lot of Metallica stuff. So, but it, it was a real funny time. I mean, most of my stories would be like, I was just up all night, never sleeping. And like number of times I worked on one in sync video where it, we just it was going to be launched on MTV and this was back in the day where like internet was so different right so we literally had to stream it over this very special box that could stream high res real time to get it to New York to launch on MTV where they were doing a behind the scenes of the making of the video which I was in and, and that was the what they were going to show first and then they were going to launch into the video and we were finishing it about an hour before the launch. And we had, and you know, it, we didn't have internet the way we do now. It was like, is it going to get there? Is, is it, it going to, and we're like watching it go across the stream box, you know, it was crazy. But we had all also, I think, hadn't gone home in maybe seven days. I had barely slept, maybe fallen asleep on the sofa for an hour here or there, but it was crazy time. But I, I do have to say like shooting back then with, I would say in sync was one of the most fun bands to shoot with just because they were a really fun group of guys. And it was a funny thing to look back on too, because Justin Timberlake was so young and, but he was just, I remember saying during that shoot, well, I did four shoots with them, I think, but one of them, I was like, this guy is going to go. So like, he is one of the most devoted to his craft of anyone I'd ever met in my life that thus far at that time he would just he was like he would stay till 4 30 in the morning and doing the same thing over and over and over again until it got right he would like pull you aside and tell you exactly like in your eyes five times like what he wants it to look like and just so passionate and it was and those guys were just so fun and the first video I worked on with him was I think sort of toward the end of his relationship with Britney Spears but then she came by to visit on the shoot and you know and I sat mostly with Justin's mom like half the shoot. <laughs> so say we all, so say we all. Yeah. But it was fun. Those were the fun times, the 90s music times, yeah. They were bananas, is that the right yeah. word, Lisa? Bananas. So, so two things that I think are interesting here, especially young people, we have access in on the phone to like be able to publish pretty high level things, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like people kind of, for lack of a better word, just you can shortcut the process. But there's two things that I think you, I heard you say that I think are really interesting. One is that, the relationships you have and the network you've created has taken a minute to create. Like that's decades in the making. You know, one of the things that Juliet and I feel about with Ready State and some of our friends is that like we have been in the same spot doing the same business for a long time and people have gotten to know us. I feel like sometimes that's undervalued. Like how do you create a network? Do you think that that, so you see young kids coming in because you're the boss woman, you know, do you see them not appreciating that it just takes a minute to develop a career? Yeah, for sure. And I do think it's such a different world because I feel like these young younger people kind of get out thinking that they're just going to start up here on top, right? And not understanding that there is a pathway to get to the top. And so I think a lot go in there thinking that they're up here and then they fall real fast and have to start from the bottom. 
Whereas I think our generation, just because I'm older than you guys, but we're kind of the same generation. But we, I think we just, it was just a given that you had to do, it was like grunt work all the way up, you know, for years, right? So I do think for me, I feel my greatest asset is my network and the people I know. And so I sit on a lot of panels for young people, especially in like technology and and creativity and like just a lot of panels also for like underserved communities, just talking to kids about careers. And they always ask me like what my number one piece of advice would be. And it really is like connect, like connect to everybody that you can, like just have lunch with people, ask people out for coffee, connect with people and tell them what you're passionate about and see if they'll mentor you to connect with, you know, just other humans in general, even if there isn't like a direct benefit potentially to you, but just the more people you know, the first of all, the richer your experience is going to be, but in life, but you're also building that network. And so I think that's something, like I said, my greatest asset, because I I did have this career where I started in New York. I lived in San Francisco. I worked between San Francisco and LA for multiple years. And I have traveled a ton for work. And so I just know people all over the world. Like if you said to me today, oh, I've got a go to Singapore tomorrow. Oh, in fact, that's a funny story. When I was in Singapore for a shoot and I was talking to this guy about where I live and he said, do you know Kelly Starrett? You know, of course, I'm like, of course I know Kelly Starrett. He's in my network and my neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) And he's my friend. But I mean, wherever, I just feel like that has been a great asset. And it's a great asset for my team and for Creative Studio at LinkedIn and everything as well. Because just, you know, if one of my producers comes to me and says, I'm working with this creative team. We have this great idea. We just don't know how to execute it. We don't know who would be right for it. Like immediately, I almost always have an idea and or somebody I can call or somebody I can connect them with. And I think that that's like kind of where the magic happens. The other thing, and I think you two share it, is that you can outwork everyone. And I know your work ethic. J-Star, I'm sort of familiar with your work ethic. (laughs) One of our friends described you as having the highest work pain tolerance of all time, right? I don't know. Anastasia may win if, if it's a competition. One of the things I'm interested in, because there is some notion of like, how do I have a personal life? And because you just hinted at something that you can take your professional life and actually make it really rich through these networks and connections, right? Like you have to take advantage of that. But you also work really hard. And I think it's difficult to tell people who are not successful, or who are already there, people who want to be successful, how hard the people who are at the top have worked. And now it looks like maybe it's effortless, but definitely I feel like that's a missing ingredient today. We almost want to go step one, have an idea, step three, retire, right? And there's a little more space and in we're there. like, yeah, retire at 98. Do you feel like you do, <laughs> you, you, you know, it's interesting because right now I'm sitting at a table where women here, you know, at least included, you're all at the peak of your power. Like you really have come into, you're the next generation leadership. And how do you sort of reconcile being family, having a personal life, being at the peak of your power with needing to work hard and still not just, you know, never being home or not having interpersonal relationships? Can you do that? I mean, I'm an answer for Anastasia. (laughs) Great. One of her greatest qualities is she is always game for literally anything, which is one of the reasons she's such a fun friend, because I can be like, Anastasia you're not much of an outdoors person, but we're going to go rafting. And she's like, I'm in. You say yes. I mean, you really are one of our friends who says yes Yes. more than anyone else. It's pretty cool. It's a a superpower. 
So I just, I want to go back to that connection thing though, because I also speak on some of those panels and I always tell the story about my mom. One of the things I learned from my mom as a journalist is she always told me, she's like, just call people. They actually pick up the phone. Like you'd be surprised. And I realize nobody really calls anybody anymore, but I know that if I had some like ambitious young person reach out to me and say, can I take you to coffee and learn about, you know, your career trajectory? Like I would happily do that. And I know you would. Especially if you weren't, there wasn't an, uh, something you wanted in there. I just want 10 minutes of your time. Can I buy you a coffee and talk about your yeah, life? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's just, you know, I think there's so much to be learned from people maybe like us who are more like, I would say mid-career. I don't know if we're quite peak, but mid-career. And anyway, so I totally agree with what you're saying. You it's, haven't peaked yet. I didn't mean that. I just mean like you have a lot of power. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. Thanks. Okay. So what I want to ask you about is, and I, you alluded to this a little bit, but what is, you know, because here you are talking about making this music video with like a, a certain set of technology in the nineties. And then you've been around producing stuff and content. Analog film too. Analog film to like what we have going on now. I mean, what has that been like for you? Has it, have there been periods in your career where it's been like hard to catch up on like mm -hmm. what the technology is because you learned when you took actual photos on film? What has that been like for you? And then I also know that I'm pretty sure you produced one of the first ever web film series. So I'd love to hear more about what that was and what that was like. The hardest part for me in terms of catching up, I don't feel like it's been the technology that's been hard because that's so learnable, right? Like you can just read and learn and work with the right people. But I think the hardest part for me now is just the evolution into like the deep social content world and just not always understanding the mentality because I didn't grow up in it. And I watch my kids and then they'll show me something and they're on the floor laughing. And I, I'm like, I don't get it. And I'm like, shit, I'm turning into my mom. Like, you know, and, and it is that moment where I'm like, God, am I going to like age out? Cause I, and that's why, again, you, you know, your strengths and you know what your weaknesses are and you backfill for it. Right. Like, I mean, I have a lot of amazing people on my team who are just live and breathe that world. So we can bounce off of each other because it's, it's a real learning curve if you didn't grow up in it. Right. Because you know, just understanding the culture of TikTok and the, you know, and I'm trying to learn it every day, but I find learning technology a lot easier than learning like massive cultural change. But I do feel so much has changed since I started in this industry, right? And now it's, it's strange because there's still this fabric of wanting to do things the way you traditionally did with like, you've got your brief and you've got your copywriter and your art director and you've got your creative director and your producer and you follow these processes. But now it's like to sort of create, as some people at LinkedIn have coined, like, you know, creating at the speed of culture, right? If we're going to create that fast, you kind of have to break these old molds. And it's hard because a lot of the people I work with, you know, you were grown up being trained that way. You went to advertising school, you went to this school, you went to whatever school, or you were trained in a certain way. And so to be comfortable breaking everything you know and being like, you know, we worked with this amazing director who shot these amazing, this amazing footage and so beautiful. And so we created some LinkedIn stories from it. And at the same time, we worked with this illustrator. It's during COVID, so we can't really shoot her directly. So we asked her to shoot herself on her phone. So we make these stories that were shot by this amazing director. The footage is amazing. The stories are beautiful. And then we have this one that this illustrator made of herself. And this one performed like a million times better than these because that's what people... Right. Are, there's you know, an authenticity to it. It's authentic because it's like she 
is being real and she shot it on her phone and there's no fake lighting and there's no stylized anything. And then we have these beautiful stories that we created with this amazing documentary filmmaker and they didn't they they didn't perform as well because the people who are watching them weren't as intrigued because they didn't feel as authentic. So like teaching people that like the standard, the old standard. How do you balance that between, I mean, I'm going to sound a thousand years old, like, like a greatest generation talking to the hippies, right? <laughs> you know, internally we struggle with, this is the content I want to make. This is the way I want to do it. I think this is really important. And then how do we cut it down to catch people's attention, right? How do you view that? Do you have an answer for that? Do you have to do both? Do you have to always meet people? Or is it just going to be a race to like a three-second soundbite that we compress? Well, and let me just add some context to that question, if I might. But, you know, we tend to make more long-form videos. And there that was actually sort of welcomed, like, let's say on Instagram, for example, they launch IGTV. It's sort of like make these longer-form videos and everyone's going to watch them. And then, and then all of a sudden TikTok comes out, Instagram launches Reels, and we learn from our friends at Google that a long a long form video in Google world is is a one minute and thirty second video, and that they really don't make any videos that are more than thirty seconds. And so, you know, we're actually struggling to kind of not struggling. We are transitioning as a company to say, okay, what well, the content we're going to put on social media needs to be short. Yeah, and it's a challenge for us. Yeah, right, especially for Kelly. I have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. It is a massive challenge too because then there's all these results and then there's all the, you know, if you want to follow like all the best practices, it's like have this in the first two seconds, have this and have it end here and have a thing here. And like, it's basically like plug and play. What, what, do you th- what do you think that goes? Because I mean, you really are, you've seen it all where you're making videos and movies and you're doing all this production. All of a sudden we've compressed it down. Are we just selfishly, are we going the way of the dodo? Will we just eventually not be able to recognize art? I mean, it's just hard because the attention span is so different. Like even I, who would feel that I'm older and have a great long attention span. I mean, how often do you guys do this? You you log in, you go to see something and you watch the first 30 seconds, you scrub through a bit and then you give up, right? I mean, I do it all the time. I don't watch things all the way through. But then going back to, I was also um, this year a judge on the AICP which is the Association of Independent Commercial Producers Award Show, which, you know, is the Advertising World's Awards. You, you end up, all the work that wins ends up in the Museum of Modern Art. And so I was a judge in the category for cause, I, so which was the most amazing category for cause marketing. And I literally spent two days watching and crying because this work was so good, but the most impact, it was all long form. Like there was nothing under 60 seconds that was winning the awards, you know? I mean, there are obviously in the advertising world and there are other categories and stuff, but to really tell an impactful, meaningful story, even if it's a branded content piece, I mean, you need some time, right? And so it's it's really hard to like tell a story like that in 15 seconds. There's ways to do it, but... And then when you watch something like that, that's 60 seconds or 90 seconds, and it's just got you, you're like, it's over. Like, I want to know. You want more, more. yeah. So, I mean, and and I do think it might swing back in that direction as people start to crave more story. You mean the, with the, the 18 seconds of the TikTok song that my kid knows? 
We've already, I think, seen that in our own content creation because when we started, it was all YouTube. And literally, I mean, you probably remember some of our old YouTube videos shot by me on a first-generation iPhone. Horrible audio, horrible video quality. My hand is all shaky all the time. The videos are shaky. But people really loved it back then, like in 2010 to 12. It was authentic and people liked it and people were willing to totally overlook the audio and video crappy quality. And then like 2014, 2015 comes and it's like, oh no. I mean, if you don't have edited and shing and subtitles here and everything, right, then it wasn't, you know, then it wasn't even worthy of putting on the internet. And now it's kind of swung back where it's like a video of someone holding the phone and talking to it is going to perform better than like something made by a documentarian. For sure. You know, so I mean, I agree. It's kind of like, you know, your 90s wardrobe is back in now. We probably should have held on to that. I I did hold on to that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I have a very large closet. I'm coming over. Wait, so I want to go back and hear a little bit, though, about that web film you did, Clive Owen and other many, many other fancy famous people were involved. But tell us what that was and what was it about? Because that was kind of radical. Yeah, it was kind of like very cutting edge. Yeah, I think that's why I always call it out when people say, like, what was your favorite thing you've ever worked on and in your career, favorite project? It it was just because it was so cutting edge and new and nobody, honestly, like, nobody really knew. We didn't really know what we were doing, right? So at that time, I worked at Radium, which was the visual effects company, that, and I was the executive producer there. And we were working with the ad agency Fallon on the BMW films, and it was just so crazy because, you know, they called us on the first film. There was this idea of doing this series. And the first film was done by John Frankenheimer as director. And so we we were like, what are we going to do with these films? And so they were like, oh, these films, we're going to make a series of films with different directors and they're going to be branded content, really long form. Like nobody had really done like long form where you don't really talk about the product at all and except you see the BMW car in it. And then we're going to have them on the internet. First of all, I mean, there was not really an internet yet, right? Like people were on dial-up. And so I have all these memories of being in LA at the the production company, Anonymous Content, and just like people, all sorts of different types of people in this room trying to figure out like how this work would stream. Like how are people going to watch this on a dial-up? And was it going to even be impactful in any way? Because the first few times I even tried to watch it on dial-up, you know, it's just like, Right. It's the endless circle, the endless circle. And and the funny story is, is in the end, it ended up being a situation where at the website, you could put in your address and you could get a DVD mailed to you to watch the films because, I mean, it was that hard. But we did make it work and it won all sorts of awards. We did get it online. People figured it out. You know, it was, you know, it definitely was better like if you weren't on a dial-up and there were some people who weren't back then. Some offices had, you know, gotten sort of hardwired with fiber and stuff. But then, you know, it became so exciting for people to like order this DVD and it became just the press on it and the PR was amazing. And what was really fun for us is the visual effects. You know, all the films were very, very visual effects heavy. And so just figuring them out and working with these directors about how they were going to shoot it and what the effects were going to be and, you know, how the whole thing was going to play out. Yeah, there were some heavies. Ang Lee, I mean, you may have, Heard of him? Yeah, I know there were a lot Guy of Guy Ritchie, John Woo. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. The Guy Ritchie one was one of my favorites just because it was Madonna being like a total wreck of a person the whole time. And if you haven't watched it in a while, it's really worth watching again. But it was also funny because she was married to Guy Ritchie at the time. And so it was just interesting to 
watch. But it was that was one of my favorite ones. Although working with John Frankenheimer was by far the highlight. You know, doing he did the initial one, the first one, and he was just so unbelievable. He said, I, "I remember those." Okay, so you have won two major awards: a Webby and a Bronze Lion. Mm-hmm. And for people who aren't in your industry, what are those things, and for what did you win them? So the Webby Awards, you know, are basically the awards for the best work on the internet globally, right? And so back in the day when I was head of production at Eleven, the ad agency, we were one of our clients was Virgin America when they were still around. God, that was a great airline. Touch anywhere to begin. Uh, I know. So good. We did this film for them called Blah Airlines, and it was the most crazy idea in the entire world. And I kind of can't believe we pulled it off, but we really didn't have much of a budget. And the creatives had this idea of like filming this terrible airline and just an entire film of how blah and boring it is to fly on bad airlines across the country. So we made like a real time, like six hour film about flying on a bad airline. And it was all shot to look so depressing and miserable. And it was all with mannequins. It was hysterical. Like how we got this done. I mean, it was kind of like, I feel like the CMO was like, yeah, 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 you go make that. That's not very expensive. Just go make it, (laughs) you know? And we did. And it was crazy. Like we built an airplane down in a hangar, like part of an airplane. And we had all these mannequins and we've like filled, and then we did all this voice work. And I mean, the edit was insane. And then it became one of those crazy things. Like, I can't believe you guys did this. And we created like blah like fake peanuts and fake fake everything. It was so funny. We, we actually had them physically made for the shoot. So we had them all over our office afterwards. But it just became very, really strangely viral. Like then it became this weird thing that people, there were some people who were doing YouTube videos of themselves watching the film. And they did six hour YouTube videos of themselves commenting on the six hour film. And so then it just became, then everyone was commenting on that. And then it just became this big, you know, sort of viral thing that just got so much attention. And then it ended up being at the Dallas Film Festival and Virgin did a stunt that if you watch the entire film, you'd get a free flight. So (laughs) they had all these people watching the six-hour film at the film festival to get a free flight. So there were just all sorts of stunts that like tagged onto it. No, I'm sure that can be made today. 15 seconds. So we have to wait. We have to go for like two minutes. And you have to watch all two minutes and you win a free ticket. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it was funny because we did do these little snippet cut downs and stuff, but it did end up winning a Webby Award for just being crazy. And then another one, or and that one, I think won the, the Bronze Lion too, right? And then there was another Virgin film that we shot in that was called Departure Date, where, which we shot with some sort of, well-known actors and we traveled, we actually shot the entire film in booked airplanes while flying in the air. So the stunt was we could only film while we were flying in flight with booked airlines. It was crazy. I mean, we'd get on these planes and then the the pilot would come out and be like, just wanted to let you all know that we're shooting a film while in flight today. Don't be disturbed. Don't be worried. You know, but I mean, I'm sure some people are like, I don't want to film being shot while I'm on this flight. It was a little strange, right? Especially we had, you know, Janine Garofalo and we had like, we had some celebrities that people recognized too. So it was interesting, but I flew from San Francisco to LA, to Dallas, to London, to Sydney, like without stopping. 
It was like, we just get on the next plane. It was insane. It was totally insane. And then when we all got to Sydney, we were like, oh, that was crazy. But it was fun because then we had two down days in Sydney after that before we all had to fly home. But it was just one of those whirlwinds. And that that also sort of went viral for the, you know, the way it was shot and filmed and stuff. It was pretty Now cool. everyone would want to be in it. Everyone's famous. Can so I fun. go watch those on, yes. they're like on YouTube or somewhere? Yeah, okay. Just, I mean, we'll put links to them in the show notes, but. Yeah. And I can send you links too, but yeah, there's departure date. Blah, yeah. Enjoy that six hours of blah, airlines. Maybe I'll watch like 20 minutes of it. <laughs> 20 minutes just to get an yeah. idea. Yeah. What are you working on now? What's getting you excited? You know, where are we going? Where are you going? Well, I don't know. That's a really interesting question right now because I feel like a lot of people are questioning where we're going <laughs> especially right now just open back up covid creativity like what's happening i know and then especially you read like all the articles in the atlantic and the new york times you know about how everyone's quitting their job this and everyone's changing their careers and everyone's having sort of crisis around what they want to do with their lives now and so i think it's a real turning point i can tell you myself at linkedin i'm seeing so much change just in terms of you know, reorganization within the company and lots of people joining and lots of people leaving. And I, I can see it even in my own space. For me, like what I'm working on right now, you know, I've, I've been working on a lot of cultural moment campaigns. We just finished our and launched our Pride campaign. And prior to that, we had done International Women's Day and prior to that, you know, Black History Month. And so those are the the most recent campaigns that I've been, you know, most focused on. And Right now, there's a lot of work around, you know, returning to the office and returning to work and like the sort of cultural moments around that and the even even sort of the psychology around that, right? But it is, it's like, are we going back? I think there's all these like mixed feelings about like physical office space and being back in it. And, and we've all sort of been thrown out of our norm into this strange year and a half. And now it's like, but do we want to go back to that? I don't think anyone knows or... I don't think anyone really wants to go back to exactly the way it was, right? So what is that in between? And it's a very strange stage right now, I think. One of the things you opened with was creating a network and having that experience. How do you think that will shape? Because, I mean, if, you know, we are lucky that we work, we have a huge remote team, Jay, you know, yeah. you know but we also, our core group is here and we get to see each other. Yeah. You know, that, that I think matters, but people are getting a lot of work done without seeing each other. Can we still have that same depth network effect if something has changed? Well, what do you think will happen? I mean, I feel like there is definitely nothing replaces the face-to-face, -face, right? And we've all been on video for a year and a half. And I think we're all really sick of it, right? I notice now in my big team meetings, like half the people don't even turn their cameras on anymore. <laughs> like everyone's just over it, right? People are like, I'm not even showering anymore. So I'm not putting on my camera. <laughs> but um, I don't think anything can replace that true, like, team culture and environment and feel when you're all seeing each other and working closely. And, and, you know, there's the hallway conversation and the eavesdropping and the things that sort of like help things coalesce and come together. And so I do think a lot of people really miss that and are eager to get back to that. And I think creativity wise, it's been really tough. I mean, I don't fall into what would be called a creative in my industry, right? Like I'm more of like a manager leader head of a department, but the creatives I've seen really suffer because you, if you can't sit at a table with your team and like riff off of stuff and whiteboard stuff and 
draw stuff and get things, go- you know, it's just, you don't have that same sort of creative juice going. And similarly with shooting, we've had to do, like when we were able to get back to shooting a bit, it was all, it's all been remote, right? So we're all sitting like on Zoom while the director's sitting with the people, you know, and so we're like sending notes over Zoom, like, can you have them say it like this? You know, and it just, it, it just doesn't feel, and at the same time, I'm getting like, messages from the creative director like this sucks I I need to just talk to the director you know and it's just it never it, you just can't get that same camaraderie feeling and like that like connection so I do think that when you know everyone's like oh it's gonna happen slow but I think it's gonna happen fast I think I had a big two-day production in October which was very difficult because of COVID and standards and airing and, and then I just got back from another you know follow-up two-day shoot and it was very different yeah just the connections, how we're able to work. You know, I think my my experience was definitely feel like a different product for sure. 100%. And I think about this, we wouldn't be sitting here right now and we don't have masks on. And like, it's just, I walked up to the cafe the other day where I get my tea and like nobody had their masks on and they're like, today's our first day with no masks. And I was like, I've never seen what you look like. You know, like, I'm like, I've been coming here for a year and a half and I didn't even know what you looked like. I was getting by. I was looking a lot younger. Uh, (laughs) What is LinkedIn doing? Are people going back? Is it a choice? Is there a mandate? Right now we're talking about going back to office in September. Different offices globally obviously have different timings. Right now San Francisco is looking at September. There's some soft openings potentially in July where people can go in. You have to sign up for a desk and stuff. But for the most part, they're talking about September. And I think it's a 50%, like go in 50% of the time. Uh, Some people will choose to go in all of the time for sure. There are the people who really want to be in the office. But for those of us who have to commute, it's a little different. That three hours, like, you know, that's of traffic tra- time. That's the trade-off, right? You lose, I think, a lot in terms of creativity and connection with other people. And then the flip side of that is, you know, to not have to commute every day. And, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe and in my case, buy a $14 salad every day for lunch that, or maybe even these days, like an $18 salad. There's some serious benefits. You know, I, I don't know. I'm kind of of the mind that it's going to become a real hybrid situation, so. you know, and that people are going to go into the office because you just can't replace that connection, but maybe not five days a week. Right. And if you look on LinkedIn right now at like jobs, you know, if you're actually on LinkedIn looking for a job, like the majority of them are remote. A lot of these places aren't even limiting their their pool to the local areas. They're looking at people all over the world, right? And so it's like you can work from wherever, which I find really interesting because it's really opened up the job pool too. Like for us, you know, looking at interns and stuff, you you know, for our program, I'm like, I can look anywhere. I could get an intern from Toronto. I can get an intern from Michigan. I can get an intern, you know, it doesn't have to be somebody in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is really limiting for the, you know, so that's cool. That's really cool. Anastasia, it's so awesome to have you here. Thank you for spending some time with us. Yeah, seriously, you are a, a boss. You are a boss. You guys should all follow her. Oh, and also, where can people find you in the interwebs and on LinkedIn? You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram, Stacia Madge. I love my Instagram. Your Instagram photography is excellent. Uh, thank you. On LinkedIn, I have all my contact info too. So if people want to find me. If you want to find Anastasia and take her out to coffee, yeah. she'll likely say yes. <laughs> Pelvic floor course. Oh my gosh, yeah. Find me there. <laughs> find me there. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You've got it. You've been a soft